The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. As we continue in our teaching series through the book of Ephesians, uh, we bring ourselves to, uh, we're going to finish up chapter 2 today. If you have your Bibles with you, we'll be reading in chapter 2, starting in verse 11. You can follow along with us on the screen. Actually, as you're finding your place there, um, we are having, if you, were, if you came out to our parenting event, uh, for our Paul Tripp parenting event. We have another event, and this one's called the Paul Tripp marriage event. And you know, our, our director of family discipleship, um, uh, Peter, one of our plans for this year is just to continue to help and equip families uh, to think in gospel-fueled, gospel-centered ways as it relates to our parenting, our relationships, our marriage. Uh, this is not exclusive just for uh, for married couples, as our parenting class wasn't just for parenting couples. But if you'd like to grow in, in, in what it means to uh, what the gospel, what, how the gospel can fuel and be the engine for your marriage. Um, we're having an event here on March 2nd through 3rd, similar to the last one where it's kind of uh, uh, a feed. Uh, we're watching on TV. He's not going to be here. Sorry, we can't afford that. But um, <laughs> it's amazing. It's going to be a great time. This format's going to be a little different that we're really excited about. Um, our Friday evening, we're going to be uh, ho host homes around town, uh, around our church, close to the church. We'll be having groups of uh, six to eight people in their home watching the Friday session, and then we'll all come together Saturday and finish up um, that conference. You can register online. It's free. Uh, there is a fee for childcare. We will be having childcare both days at the church if you'd like to use that. It's a small fee for childcare, um, but we, we hope you'll come out, and this should be a really great time. March 2nd and 3rd, put it on your calendar. You can register on our event page at holycrosstucson.com. And so uh, we'll be talking about it more. Wanted to get it into your hands today, and it should be a really great, great time. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you remember kind of the big overarching theme of Ephesians, we've been talking about this, how Ephesians is about telling us what the gospel is, and how the gospel applies to our life. And Ephesians answers those big questions, the what of God and the how of God. What's God's plan? 
What does he desire? What's his agenda? And how does he go about accomplishing it? Why does God do anything? Why does he create anything? Why does he create you? Maybe you have wondered that or even continue to wonder it. God, what is your purpose for me in life? Maybe even thinking further back. God, why did you even create Adam and Eve in the first place? If you were good and everything was fine and you had perfect community within, your, within yourself, why did you create Adam and Eve and put them in the garden? Why do you create, oh, why do the things happen in our life? Why, do, why does uh, the difficulty happen? Why do the joys happen that we experience? What's the purpose of it all? And that's what chapter 1 mentions, that God has a purpose, that he has a will, and that he does everything according to his plan. And then there's this pronouncement in chapter 1, uh, verse 22, where it says, and he put all things under the feet and gave uh, under his feet, who's Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fits, who fills all in all. And so, in this introduction, I want to I wanted to show you this in God's cosmic agenda. His big plan is to put everything under the feet of his faithful Son. So God's big plan is to give Jesus all the authority on heaven and earth, all things seen and unseen. His big agenda is to establish his kingdom where Christ is king over all of creation, but that's not only it. It's not only in his plan. His great plan is to give all of that to Jesus and then to gather to himself a people, his church, where Christ, who had everything and all the authority, he would share all of that with his new family, his new adopted family, the church. So if you want to think of God's big plan, it is this, to give Jesus everything. And for Jesus to share all of that blessing with his newly adopted family, the church. That's God's plan for everything that he does. It's a great idea, isn't it? This is a great idea that, that in all things, God's big cosmic plan is to bless his son and then for Jesus to share all that with his newly adopted brothers and sisters. I love that plan. I love that. We get that. That's what Paul's been talking about in chapter 2, that we get this by, by grace. It's a gift from God. And Jesus earned this as the faithful son, and, and he gives it now to us, the church, as a gift. Awesome plan. There are several problems. <laughs> there are big obstacles to that plan. There's big obstacles to that plan. First, we see in Ephesians this big obstacle of the first one. One, we're held captive by the authority of, of sin and the power of sin. Remember in chapter 2, this little, this ideal kind of picturesque, like little house in the prairie idea of the church is non-existent, is it? You guys know Little House on the Prairie? I mean, I grew up watching that every Sunday night. Okay, uh, those of you who don't know, it's that TV show and the you know kind of the it's set in it would watch and we'd watch in the '80s on Sunday nights, depicting this this wonderful family, this harmonious family that began. That every show began and ended with kids running through fields of daisies. You know, this was just life. You know, life on the prairie. But if we look in Bible and we see that our expectation, what we expect, and that picture of the family of God is is absent. You know, what we see in Scripture is that all was not well in Mayberry. That's another show. So, you know, all is, all is not well in the family of God. It was a disaster. People were broken and full of sin, and, and we were held captive by authorities that were out beyond our control. We could, we could, not, we could not fight those authorities. And so, so Jesus, though, he fixes that first problem. See, the first problem is we're held captive by sin. Jesus fixes it by redeeming us. In chapter 1, it says he redeemed us by the blood of Christ. So Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He atones for our sins. And that redeeming, he, he takes back what was his. He saves us from captivity. He purchases our, our redemption. He ransoms us. You know those terms. 
Well, there's a second problem that Paul talks about to this, this great plan of God's to give us everything. The second plan, or the second problem was, we're dead. We're dead in sin, he says. Incapable of knowing God, incapable of choosing God, incapable of responding to God or doing anything of any sort of good that would merit our salvation. Paul says, you have a problem. You can't even breathe. You can't even choose God. You can't even, you can't even cry out. But God solves this problem too by raising us up in Christ. He raises us up. The power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that brings us from spiritual death into spiritual life. So God fixes two problems out of three. What's the third obstacle that, that, that Paul addresses? And this is the third obstacle that we're going to address today. The third obstacle in this passage is we are cut off from fellowship with one another. And so I want you to show you the three most cosmically worst problems in all of the world. One, we're held captive by the power of sin and death. Two, we're dead spiritually. Three, we don't get along with each other. Those are the three problems, the three obstacles to having all that God has promised to us. Isn't that weird? Power of death and hell, dead in sin. You don't like the person sitting next to you. Those are the three problems. And sometimes it's easier to be risen from the dead than to, do, than to solve that third problem. Sometimes they say, okay, God, tell me more about how you did all these miracles, you know, of raising me from spiritual death into spiritual life, because living in a peaceful relationship with my neighbor, that seems easier. I mean, that's, that actually seems harder than actually being raised from the dead. And so God's agenda is to give us everything, to give the church everything. He's, his agenda is to give it all to Jesus, to make him authority over all. And then Jesus says, I want to share this with my brothers and sisters. And this is my promise. And as much as the gospel has to do with our spiritual salvation, it has to do with our authentic, restored, and gospel-fueled community with others. We cannot segment these. We cannot divorce these from one another. And too often, as we talked last week, we often have a much too narrow view of our salvation. Our salvation is what Jesus did for us so that we would, on this trajectory of going to hell, would be saved from that punishment and now brought to life and go to heaven. But it's much more than that. It's not less than that, but it is much more. So Jesus even says, you want to know, you want to know who, the, who those are, are who belong to my family? Do you want to know if someone has the forgiveness and salvation of Christ? Pay attention to how they love one another. You will know them for their love for one another. You will know that they belong to me for their love for one another. Jesus doesn't even divorce personal salvation of forgiveness of sins and love and restored relationship with other people. These are not, these are not uh, mutually exclusive things. So that's the introduction. That's the introduction to this passage. We saw those three wonderful things and those, the wonderful plan of God and the three obstacles to that plan. And we're going to solve that third obstacle today. This is all about the, the what and how of Christian community. It's all about the what is God's plan for the church and how he goes about accomplishing his purposes for the church. Four things we're going to see. You guys get a bonus point today. You know, we always do three. We're getting four. A picture, four things we're going to see. We're going to see a picture of the church. We're going to see the, the problem with the church. We're going to see the hope for the church. And then we're going to see what will become of the church. What is God's plan for the church? Let's begin with a picture of the church. Just look at what the church, how the church is described in this passage. These three metaphors towards the end of that section that we read. 
He says that we're fed up fellow citizens with God's people. We're like we're fellow citizens, like you would think of a, a national citizen or a neighbor uh, in a part of a country. We in the family of God, we're, we're kind of like citizens. We're also members of a household. We are, we are his family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and the head of our, our family is, is Christ himself. And thirdly, he says we are like building blocks. We're like stones in a holy temple. Uh, God inhabits his people. He inhabits the church in a similar way that he, his presence, inhabited the temple, the temple of God. And so what is this describing as we look at these three things? It's describing a lifestyle for God's people that are deeply connected in vital, habitual community with other Christians. It's describing this, this relationship that's real and, and regular and thoughtful and intentional and passionate and where we're sharing sins with one another and where we're forgiving sins and we are restoring where they're bringing restoration where there has been hurt. And these and, and many other analogies in Scripture describe the relationship between Christians and one another as one to be of, one of community and commitment and unity and sacrificial love and service. Let me use another analogy, analogy of a wedding. At weddings, there's always a, a best man speech, there's a maid of honor speech, and you've been to several weddings, I, I assume, and, and the, these speeches sound the same a lot. There's always a, there's always a, a lot of unique components as it relates to the personal relationship, but there's always some similar things. The maid of honor, the best man would get up and say something like this. Say, you know, we've known each other for a long time. We, have, we grew up together. You know the worst about me, and you know the best about me. You've seen me angry. You've seen me kind of blow my lid. You've seen me cry. You know all my struggles. You know the secrets about me that no one else knows, and you've been there the whole time, and you've not abandoned me, and you've loved me in spite of all those things. You're the person that knows me at my worst, and you have never given up on me. Does that sound familiar? Right? That's, every, that's every speech, right? And Paul's saying, this is what the family of God should be. You see, we, we have those speeches, and we think it's, like, it's so unique, and the relationship between a brother and a brother, or a sister and sister, or a brother and sister, is so unique, so intimate. Paul is saying, that's what it should be like in the church. We should have those relationships in that way with fellow Christians, not just with blood relatives, but with relatives in the family of God. Don't leave yet, okay? I don't know I'm freaking you out. It gets, it's good. Uh, there's always, um, there's this closeness of a family member, and that's what Paul calls the church. Here's another one, and I don't know if you do this, and it's something I do. I have the spiritual gift of embarrassment uh, in <laughs> In public, I embarrass myself and I embarrass others. When I get uncomfortable or excited, I, I embarrass myself and others, okay? Um, if I see someone in public, if I'm going around or another, in Tucson, but, but if in another city, this is where it gets extra embarrassing. And if I see someone reading their Bible in public, I just get like super excited and I just like, I go up to them and I just want to be like, Jesus is awesome, right? Or, you know, I'll say, I'll say stuff like, you love Jesus? And they're like, yeah. You know, what is that? And I just get, and I was like, well, that was just like horribly wrong. I just get so excited. I see, I see someone else that's like a Christian or, or they're maybe wearing a ring with like a fish on it or there's, you know, I don't know. Where like, I, I don't go up to people with the t-shirts because that bugs me. But, and it, you know, <laughs> it's, it's strange. You know, it could be in another state, another country. And I randomly notice, I feel that there's like this, this connection. I feel like we're cousins. I feel like we're siblings. I feel like there's, they're part of the family. It's less embarrassing, and maybe, maybe this is more hits, hits more to home for you, but 
You ever go to another country and see someone with like a U of A Wildcat shirt on? You know what I'm talking about? Or even another state and you're like, bear down. <laughs> you feel a bond with that person and you don't even know that person. You, right? You feel a bond. You feel like, hey, we're part, we belong in something together. Paul is saying this is what the church should be. This is actually what the church ought to be. This is God's desire for the church. A picture of the church is that. And you know why when, you've, when you meet another Christian or you, you meet someone who, who wearing a wildcat shirt on, why you feel that connection? Because there is one. Because you do belong in something together. You are sharing something. You're in a community. And Paul's saying, you know why you feel this like, weird connection with another believer that you've never met? is because you are supernaturally bound to this person. You are, you know why they feel like a brother or sister? Because they are a brother or a sister. Paul says we are fellow citizens. Even when we've never met, we share a bond like family. We share a bond like fellow citizens. And so it is God's agenda, his purpose, and his will, the hidden mystery of God's plan from eternity past, is to gather people together who love each other so well and are committed to each other so deeply that the world would see our love for one another and marvel at it. That's his secret. That's his secret plan for the church. And for some reason, I feel like we're un so underwhelmed by that. We're like, oh, that's great, you know, like, that's, that's nice. I mean, everyone wants to have a relationship. Everybody wants to have that, but that's just not possible. And yet we find it possible when he says stuff like we're dead and we've risen from the graves. And we, we say, yeah, that's reasonable. <laughs> Forgiving someone who hurt me? I mean, that's just folklore. <laughs> we believe that God rose a, phys a physically dead person from the grave. And we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live and die for that message. And then we hear him say, and, be, and forgive people who have hurt you. And you say, oh, come on, let's look at other options. Let's weigh the issues. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that we think it's actually harder to forgive somebody than it is to raise a dead person from the grave? Have you ever wondered why? Why we feel that way? Well, because we have problems. There's a problem in the church. There's a problem in us all. G.K. Chesterton was a, a very famous writer and poet and lay theologian in the late 18th century, early 19th century. And at the time, there was a, a newspaper. It's, it's like the, the, you, fold, you fold it over like this. You open it. And, and there was a paper, there was a paper uh, that was published, and it invited contributions from citizens. It asked a question, and it wanted people to actually to submit their responses to the paper. And the question was, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton submitted his two-word response that was brief and to the point. And the two words were, I am. You know, he saw that the, the cause of the world's problem was that mankind, himself included, was that there is something selfish and self-absorbed about us that prevents us from living in healthy community with others the way that we were designed to do it. Paul says virtually the same thing in our passage in verse 14. Look at that again. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing 
the hostility. What is the disease in this passage? Paul actually mentions it twice. What is the problem, the disease in all of us that keeps us and creates an obstacle to that third part of God's agenda of our community? He mentions it twice. He says it twice. Hostility with one another. Hostility is it's hatred. It's enmity. It is opposition to other people. Specifically in this instance, it is hostility or hatred towards people who are different from us. And Paul is saying this is in the human heart. <clears throat> it's in the human heart to have a natural hostility towards people who are different from us, who look different, who act different, who have a different work ethic, who, who speak different, dress different, smell different, whatever it is. The example Paul gives here is the law. He says, uh, or the, the law and the Jew versus the Gentile. So the example Paul uses as, a, as a, an example to us is, let me tell you about the Jew and the Gentile and how there's hostility there. Gentile and Jews. As we see in Scripture, we're often in conflict one, with one another and continue to be in many ways to this day. The cause of their hatred for one another was the law of God. The Jews had the law, right? You know this. God gave to his, to his chosen people, his chosen ethnic people, the law. He gave them the law. And the Gentiles did not have the law. They were cut off from that. They did not have that. The question is, well, how, does the, how is something so good and something so beautiful turn into something that creates hostility between two people? Here's what happens. The law was given to the Jews for a purpose, and the purpose was that by the Jewish people receiving that law, obeying that law, loving God, and living lives of righteousness and holiness before Him, that as obeying that law, they would be a light to the nations and to the world, and a light to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles would see them in their worship and turn and worship their God because of the beauty of their life in response to that law. But we know that's not what happened. Instead, the Jewish people said they took that law, and they took that law, and they saw what they had. They saw the virtue that they had, and they said, this is, this is awesome, and they turned it inward, and they turned it into something that created hostility towards those who didn't have it. They thought, well, look how awesome we are and how much God loves us well, you don't have the law. What's wrong with you? And so those who were, who were ceremonially unclean, the Gentiles who didn't adhere to the ceremonial laws, the Gentiles who didn't do what, uh, they were godless and friendless and hopeless in the world, and they had the law, and they're like, look, we have the law. There must be something wrong with you. God must love us because he gave it to us. Therefore, he must hate you. We don't like you. And that's what happened. The Gentiles shared none of the privileges of God's people. They were separated from God's people, strangers to God's promises, uncircumcised, and therefore unclean. The Jews despised the Gentiles because they were dirty and pagan. The Gentiles despised the Jews because they were snobby and arrogant, and they hated each other. What's the principle? Because I don't think anyone in this room is currently experiencing fighting over who's a Jew and who's a Gentile. And just so you know, I'm both. So I got all my bases covered. Uh, <clears throat> or we're not fighting about who's circumcised and who's uncircumcised. But there is a human heart at work here that, that, that translates for us. What if you, what, the, the human heart translation is this. We take our virtues. We take the things that we like about ourselves. We take the blessings that God has given to us, the things that we're good at the things that we have accomplished, and we become proud of those things, and we find our worth and value in those things, 
and then we despise anyone who isn't like that. What if you and I abandoned the idea that the problems and weaknesses in our relationships with others is caused by a lack of information or dedication or communication, but instead it's caused by a war that's raging within our own hearts? What if, what if our problems with one another is not that that person doesn't see things our way or that it's a lack of communication and therefore thinking that the, then this relationship is restored because you learn more information about me or you understand my point of view or you change your behavior and become a different person? What if the problem wasn't those things but it was actually something deep inside of our heart that is natural to the human heart? And it's a selfishness, and it's a taking something that, that we like about ourselves, seeing that it doesn't exist in that other person, and saying, there must be something wrong with you. That's what Paul says is going on. He says that we're alienated from one another because of the war that rages in us. The greatest problem in the church is not doctrinal differences. The greatest problem is not philosophical disagreements or even musical preferences. It is the war that rages in our hearts. We're prone to pride and self-centeredness. We're prone to taking God's blessings, turning it inward, and making it about ourselves, and then despising anybody else who's different. And it's not hard to see how often we take what is good and make it about ourselves. Think of the times that you've intentionally avoided someone who bothers you. Or the times you've looked down on a person because of race, or gender, or ethnicity, wealth, or lack of wealth. Or the times you've stopped pursuing certain friends because they're no longer useful to you, your image, your purposes, your hope, hopes, or your dreams. Or the times you let hurt feelings fester for so long in your heart that it turned into hostility and turned into hatred of that person. This is a result of something going deeply wrong in our hearts. Deeply wrong, and it spills out into our relationships. But there is good news. There is good news. The good news of the gospel meets us right at that place, and this is where our scripture meets us right at that place, seeing that hostility, seeing that division, and then the good news meets us. The gospel is the hope of the church. What is the hope of the church? It is the good news of Christ and what he has done. The hope for relationships that have gone bad. Paul wants us to know that if we want to address our horizontal relationships with one another, whether it's enmity, division, hurt feelings, we have to address our vertical relationship, our relationship with God. And it's here that we see first and the first and only imperative in chapters 1 through 3. If you were here in our introduction a few weeks ago, you remember that I mentioned in chapters 1 to 3, it's all indicatives. The verbs are all in this indicative voice, meaning here is what God has done, here is what God has done. And then chapter 4 to 6, it's just flooded with imperatives. Basically, in light of that, here's what you do, here's what you do, here's what you do. And I said, well, there's one verb in all of chapter 1 to 3 that actually tells us something to do. And here's where it's found. And that word is remember. <laughs> and so it's almost like that's not even really an imperative. It's like you're telling me just to Remember all that God has done for me. Remember what? Remember what? Remember, too, that you were once far off from God. So if we want to learn about how do we have a relationship with one another, Paul is saying, let me direct you first to a vertical relationship. Remember. Remember that you were once alienated, that you were once friendless, 
godless, hopeless, that you were enemies of God. Remember everything that I have said, Paul is saying. Remember everything that you know. That you were cut off from hope. You were cut off from the people of God. How desperate is verse 12? How desperate is this wording at the end of verse 12? Having no hope and without God in the world. That's a hopeless, that's a hopeless sentence. It says, remember what you were like. You literally had no one. You were literally were, were hopeless. You literally had no, no hope. You were once not friends with God, but now you have been brought close into friendship with God. You were once not part of the family of God, but now you've been adopted into His family by His grace. Once you were dead, but now you've made alive. Once you were not a citizen, and now you are the people of God. Citizens of heaven with an eternal, an eternal destination and destiny. Do you want hope for your relationships? I mean, seriously, you want hope for your marriage? Do you want hope for your friendships? Do you want hope for your church? It begins and ends with remembering what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. If you want a healthy, horizontal relationship with other people, you have to remember your vertical relationship with God and on the basis on which it stands. All that we are and all that we will be and all the blessings that we enjoy is entirely on God's grace. There is such a thing as, as spiritual amnesia, forgetting what God has done for us and the blessings that we have in Christ. It's forgetting where we came from. And in error, secretly believing, because we forget that where we have come from, we forget the grace of God, we secretly believe that we are just the kind of person that God would love. Do you know what I mean? There's something deep in our heart that kind of forgets God's grace, and we feel there's something about me that makes God glad that I'm on his team. And it makes us despise others that are not like us. And so Paul is saying that the law of God once acted like a, like a barrier, a barrier prohibiting access uh, between, between uh, God's blessings and everyone. And this barrier surrounded God's ethnic people. They were imperfect. He gave them the law and called them to perfect obedience, and they, they even failed to do that perfectly. But now, because Christ fulfilled the law by obeying it perfectly, he who was, not, who, he who was without sin became sin for our sake. He was perfect, and he obeyed God perfectly in the active will of God by doing everything that he had said. He obeyed God perfectly in his passive will by saying, God, whatever you have for my life, I will follow in that way. And dying a sinner's death and raising from the grave, now he takes down that barrier, he abolishes that barrier, and now access is granted not only to the Jew outwardly, but to the Jew inwardly. The person who is a Jew inwardly is one who has not had outward circumcision, but one who has had a circumcision in the heart, one who by faith has trusted in this hope and good news and has, has been reborn. The one who believes in Jesus people who had the law were prideful, and they abused the law by using it for their own selfish ego. But when Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, and he died a sinner's death, he took away the reason for us to boast. It's what we read last week in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's what we read this morning in our order of worship. The, the point is here is that when God gives you a law and you have something good, there's a sense of pride when you follow it, when you obey it. And Jesus is saying, hey, there is no reason for you to boast because you have failed at this, but I have perfected it, and now I'm giving you the, the, the effects of it. I'm giving you my righteousness 
in place of your failure. So he's taking away every reason for us to be prideful about anything. I mean, everything. You see what Jesus is saying? He says that by obeying the perfect law and dying for all the ways that we have failed to obey it, he now restores our capacity for healthy relationships, not only with God, but with others. So the third obstacle of the broken relationships between people, the answer is the same answer of the first two. It's all in the grace of God. We, uh, he defeats the power of death over our lives by Jesus going to the cross. He raises us from the grave by resurrecting from the grave himself. And he uh, deals with this obstacle by taking away that division between us and any reason to boast on any merits of our own by obeying the law perfectly. It says Christ himself is our peace. He is our peace. It is because of him. How does this work? He says, Paul says, here's what God did. He takes two, man, two men and makes them one. And so just think of this analogy that he says. He takes two men. He takes the Jew and he takes the Gentile and he makes them one man in Christ. What does that mean? Well, he took the Jew and the Gentile and he now makes them a Christian because of all that Jesus did for them. Now they are no longer separate by their ethnicity, their accomplishments, their personality. Now they're identified as one person, a Christian, under Christ. So peace in relationships comes not from one person becoming more like the other person, but by both people recognizing their supreme need for the grace of God and becoming more like Jesus together. How many times when a relationship has gone bad, do you believe that that relationship would just be fixed if that person becomes more like you? That person sees your point of view. How many times have you been asked or even demanded of you that you change to become more like that person and then the relationship will be better? That's kind of virtually every time. Paul says it is not about becoming more like you or becoming more like the other person that is going to help this relationship. It is about both of you recognizing your need for God's grace and becoming more like Jesus. Christ himself is our peace. The reason the Gentiles were no longer outsiders and were now loved by, and, and, and were now loved by the Jews was not because the Jews changed their views on the Gentiles. And so when Paul is saying you Jews need to, you, you need to love the people who are not like you, you need to love the Gentiles, they didn't say, they, they didn't change their mind. Okay, maybe they're not unclean, maybe they're actually pretty pleasant people. Okay, maybe they're not godless, maybe they're actually like, you know, maybe they, they have some dignity about them. None of that changed. It was because of the, they, they were deserving of their love because of the grace of God that was given to them. Nothing had changed about the Gentiles, but the relationship had to change merely because and essentially because of what Jesus had done for them. That Jesus took down the dividing wall of hostility, poured out his grace upon people who didn't deserve it. And now Paul's saying, you need to love those people. Because I do. Because I love them. Because they're made in the image of God, and the grace of God has been given to them. And by no other merit. By no other reason. Every reason to give them the fullest measure of grace that has been given to us. They are to give them the full measure of grace because of the measure of grace that has been given to them by Jesus. 
This is good news. It's good hope for us. It's good hope for relationships that have been hurt and broken. But it's not the end of that good news, and I'm thankful for that. It's st- God is, Jesus is still preparing us for something. He's still transforming us. And finally, we need to look at, well, what is the hope of the church? What is he still to- doing? What will become of God's people? Because I know we try at this, and we fail at times. We probably fail more times than we succeed, but we see glimpses of it happening. We see restoration in the church. We see restoration in marriages. We see restoration between, enemy, between enemies. But what, what is his promise to us? Well, we're not only created for community and restored in our capacity for community by the grace of Christ. We are being transformed in community. We are, Paul says we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Here is Paul's key idea. Paul's key idea in this, he's saying, you will be ruled by one of two men. So think about this. He says, he uses this analogy a couple times. Two different kinds of man, I'm making you into one new man. You'll be ruled by one of two men. The first man that you may be ruled by is Adam. Adam sinned. His sin led to a curse, and that curse has wrecked our ability for healthy community with one another. Thanks, Dad. Right? And that has been given to us. It has, it has been, we've inherited this guilt. We've inherited this brokenness. We have inherited this inability to have healthy and good relationships with others. We fight, we hate, we despise, we look down on people. But then there's a second man, the man Jesus Christ, who came to undo all of that. Everything that Adam, all the responsibility that was given to the first man, Adam, as a representative of of all of mankind, he failed, he ruined it, and the cause of that was guilt for us all. But the second man would come, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, and accomplished everything perfectly that Adam failed to do, to undo all that. So that beautiful, healthy, loving, committed, honest, sacrificial, and authentic relationships with those in the church are not a secondary purpose of God for you. It is God's plan for you. It is not a peripheral benefit of the church. It is God's agenda for the church. And often we make this a secondary thing. We make it a, a, a byproduct, community being a, a, an overflow, a, a byproduct of loving Jesus. It is God's agenda that we would be one. It is, it is the prayer that Christ prayed before he was crucified. He prayed, God, would you, would you make them one as you and I are one? And would they be in, in me as I am in them? Would they be one with one another? Jesus prayed for this. He died for this. You know that Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins. You come to church expecting people to say that. But do you know that he also died for your relationships to be restored with one another? He died for that. It was worth dying for. The daily struggle with sin experienced by genuine Christians is is real. And it brings attention to the fact that while Christ certainly saved us, he does not transform us instantly into non-sinners. And so we continue. Our justification is a one-time act. We are adopted into the body of Christ. We are adopted into the family of God. We are are in one-time act. We are made alive and forgiven. 
And then there is a continual thing that happened. There's a work of God that continually shapes us more and more. This is what he's talking about in this passage, that we would grow in faith, that we would restore in our relationships. Whether you are introverted or extroverted or socially awkward, you know who you are. Something in your soul longs for meaningful community with others. You were made for it. And it is for this reason that Jesus died for you. Do not use your personality as an apologetic for your lack of pursuit of healthy relationship with others. You're covering up something. You were made for it. The process that begins the moment we believe and continues throughout a lifetime on earth in a context for our spiritual growth and Christian community, church is the laboratory. The church is the laboratory for God's agenda to remove and to abolish this obstacle that we have with one another. The church is the laboratory. It's the place where we test these things out and grow and struggle. It's the place where we confess our sins and repent of sins and ask for forgiveness. It's the place where we extend long-suffering and mercy to those who have hurt us. And we are to do that to be a light to the nations. Who do you despise? What kind of person stirs up hostility in you? Is it, a, is it a race? Is it a personality type? Is it a, is it a certain type of work ethic? Is it a political party? Is it your spouse? Is it your children? Who are these people in which there continues to be a dividing wall where there is hostility, where there is hatred, where there is something in your heart that is deeply broken and wounded that makes you feel like, if only that person would be more like me, maybe we can be friends. You know, this requires this continual remembering of what we deserve, God's rejection, and a continual remembering of what we have, God's acceptance, because of His grace. You know, if you look at the person you despise, and you see Jesus and what he's done for you, and you are not moved to extend love to that person, then you don't know fully what Jesus has done for you. There's somewhere in your heart that the good news of God's grace for you has yet to reach. It's yet to penetrate. It's yet to transform. And that is God's agenda for you, that you would continue to transform into the likeness of Jesus that that wall would come down further and further in those relationships, that it would be abolished because God says, I have taken down that wall once and for all between me and you. God, holy God, and sinful man and woman. God says, I took it down. There is no reason for you to hold it up between yourself and anyone. You don't need to go on a foreign mission trip to learn about how to love people different from you. You know, that's what we do. That's one of the benefits of actually going overseas and people come back changed. And they come back changed because they say, wow, I got, to, I got to really sit in someone else's life. I got to walk in their shoes. You don't need to spend all that money and travel all that distance to do that. You can do that in the body of Christ. We, we go to such great lengths to be a part of people who are different from us when someone who's very different from you 
lives in your same neighborhood and sits in the same row and goes to the same church and is in your same life group and, your, and, and goes to the same school as your kids, we have ample opportunity and something so beautiful about the body of Christ is God has brought together people that have no reason to be together apart from their love for Jesus and their redemption in Christ. We have no reason to be together in the same room apart from Christ. And we have ample opportunity to get to know people, to walk in people's shoes, to spend time understanding people's hopes and fears and dreams and hang-ups and sins and burdens that they carry right in our church. It's all here. The church provides this, this street-level theology where we work through our faith every single day in normal things. Find someone different than you and pursue that person. Find someone different from you and seek to understand them. Find someone different from you instead of wanting them to be more like you and to see things your way. Walk with them to Jesus together. A church who anchors its hope and character on its members or its pastors is a very vulnerable church. If the hope of Holy Cross rests on your character or your endurance or mine, guys, we are in trouble. Any church that hangs its hope on us becoming just better people is in a bad place. But a church who anchors its hope on Christ, the chief cornerstone that is building this spiritual building, we are as secure as Christ himself. And he's not going anywhere. He has made that abundantly clear. Final thought, and this is really my final thought. I know that's like code for we have 30 more minutes, but this is my final thought. <clears throat> we are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Here's the image. The dwelling place of God was the temple. The dwelling place of God now is the church. The dwelling place of God. And He has come into our lives, He comes into our heart, and He starts rearranging the furniture. And He starts cleaning things out, and it's painful. He starts doing surgery on your heart. He starts addressing that <clears throat> selfishness and that self-centeredness. <clears throat> Why does He do that? Well, because He's moving in. He's moving in. He says, I live here now, and we got to do some redecorating. And He's going to make it into a mansion. He's going to make it into a beautiful temple. He's going to make it into a mansion, a spiritual house. The temple stones were built, or were brought together, and they were brought together so imperfectly, and they were carved by skilled stonemasons, and they took a lump of clay, and they carved it, and they made straight edges, and they polished it off, and then they laid the brick, and upon that brick, they would lay another brick, and they had to polish it and carve it and cut it out. That's what he is doing with you. If a stone was rigid and needs smoothed out, the mason would transform it. That's what Christ does with us. He transforms us by His Spirit, by calling us to repentance, by, by preaching the Word to us, by bringing us in line with the nature and character of Christ. The church ought to be a people who are a shining light to the whole world, that people who are very different from you can be loved. Not only should we do this within the church, but Christians everywhere must be agents of peace and reconciliation with others around the world. To do anything else is to deny the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. If a man died on the cross for his enemies, if, if that's the heart of your life, then there is 
no hostility in your life where he cannot bring peace. Let's be that church. Let's pray.